I'm Bub. Welcome to Bub on Purpose, the podcast. I believe that a life driven by purpose can lead to a more fulfilling life. So I ask passionate people why they do what they do. I dive deep into conversations with people of all ages who have developed their life purpose and who can inspire, offer advice, share techniques for developing purpose, and articulate their perspectives. As this podcast is in the early stages, I'm really just excited to dive in and learn myself and share that with you guys. So if you're here in this early stage, I really appreciate you for listening and I hope you take away something valuable. It's not just this generation's fault that they feel so lost and that they're all trying to find their calling but can't. You've just been given more opportunities than anyone else ever had before. You have to try to look for something deeper than the culturally constructed. There's urgency to this passion thing, so I think you're really on to something. We're talking about whether we survive on the planet or not. I would live my life as if I was going to write a book about it. What would people say about me at my funeral? You really have to have a healthy disrespect for other people's opinion. You know, life is not this guarantee. We're in, there's no guarantee in life. The truck runs me down right after this interview. I've fucking died doing everything I could possibly have done. The voice inside of you that's asking those questions deserves to be honored. That's your truth. That's your clarity. That's your passion. In this episode of the Bub on Purpose podcast, I speak with Matt Ritter. He is a botanist, an author of many books, and a professor at Cal Poly University. His books range from his climate fiction book, Rainwalkers, to another titled California Plants, A Guide to Our Iconic Flora, and he even has written a children's book, which is coming out in 2021, called Something Wonderful. Matt was my brother Scout's favorite professor at Cal Poly, so he joined me on this podcast. In our conversation, Matt shares a bit on how he became so interested in plants and the natural world, as well as his personal philosophies for passionately living a fulfilling life. I came across this quote from William McDonough before the conversation that really should be quite humbling for anyone and acts as a unique connector between Matt's world of botany and one of my worlds, designing objects. Imagine this design assignment. Design something that makes oxygen, sequesters carbon, fixes nitrogen, distills water, accrues solar energy as fuel, makes complex sugars and food, creates microclimates, changes colors with the seasons, and self-replicates. Why don't we knock that down and write on it? I hope you enjoy my conversation with Matt Ritter. Well, Matt Ritter, thanks for joining today. I'm here with Scout, my brother. And you were Scout's professor at Cal Poly. And I've heard your name quite a few times over the years because he was quite, uh, I guess, inspired by your teaching and your classes that he took. Um, so we're quite excited to jump into what you're more of an expert about than we are. But I guess let's start out with how do you describe your work? 
Well, first of all, let me say thanks. It's uh, great to be on the line with the two of you. Scout, uh, good to hear your voice. And <laughs> it's been a little while since we saw each other in person, but um, uh, my work, well, so I've been a professor at uh, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo in the biology department for 18 years now. And I uh, teach courses associated with ecology, plant biology, environmental issues. And um, the way that I approach teaching is potentially different than a lot of faculty members approach teaching. I don't, I don't know that to be true, but, but my approach, and I'm going to be totally honest with you, is that I feel like, you know, after 17, 18 years of being a professor, I have come to the realization that it's really hard to teach anybody anything. And, and especially mm -hmm. in a situation in which you're there in a room with me and I am saying facts to you and that I'm expecting you somehow to regurgitate those facts and uh, learn something from that situation. I just don't think that's realistic. It's not how I've learned anything in my life. I have learned uh, things entirely by uh, working. I've learned things entirely by working hard, reading, having experiences, having my own experiences, trying to do sort of post-action reviews associated with the things that happened to me. And, and so I, if you're, if you're a professor and then you have this realization that you're not capable of teaching anything, what do you do as if your job then at that point? And so I've kind of settled on this idea that I am more of a motivational speaker than I am of somebody who blabbers facts at people. And what I mean by motivational speaker is not so much like, um, hey, get out there and work harder or something like that, but more like, this is what's interesting to me. This is what stokes me out. I feel like I'm living the dream and you could too. And I, and I try to give that message constantly to young people that I, my life is filled with delight and awe at the organisms that I look at that I study that I interact with and then you could have that too imagine living in a world where you were amazed by everything around you and you knew a little bit about those things and you wanted to know more do you think that came naturally or like who was a big influence in sort of guiding you to pay attention to the natural world yeah I had a I had a relatively abnormal upbringing, I would say, uh, in the sense that I grew up in a very rural place. I grew up in a very small town in Northern California. I uh, went to a very high, small high school, and I had sort of a series of teachers or father figures, you could call them. They happened to all be male, but um, that that taught me skills and the ideas that I think I've carried with me. First, I should mention that I, my parents, my, my parents weren't, were, were, I guess you could call them abnormal as well. They're kind of back to the landers up in a mm -hmm. very rural place. They, um, for instance, that my dad felt that pooping inside of a house was a huge waste of a resource. And so he, uh, <laughs> he made it an outhouse. We were required or, it was never even an option to use the toilet inside. It was not a, a, a facility we used. We used the outhouse, and then that was all composted material that would go on the garden. My, 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 my dad was a, he 
farmed watermelons for a while. He ran a bakery for a while. And then he went back to school and became a doctor, a physician's assistant. And him and my mom started a small uh, public community health center in this in the town I grew up in Mendocino County, where they basically did health care for, for poor rural people. And, um, and in that whole time and process, I, uh, I not only see in them and the way they interacted with the world, but I grew up next to a wooden boat builder who was also a philosopher. And he taught me a lot about, um, his name is Bob Cummings. He runs Secret Harbor Boatworks. And he taught me about craft, about building things, about how to appreciate things that are well built. And, um, that was important. And it was, it, it was, it was good to be able to interact with Bob on a daily basis and see how he worked, how he built his boats. And then he allowed me to work with him and that kind of thing. And, and I, I, I still do woodworking to this day. I have a beautiful shop that I've spent a lot of yeah, time building. I build very difficult long-term furniture and building projects. And it's, it, and, and that is a um, thing that probably has shaped the way I view the world is this idea of having these people that have come to me as good teachers and then I have learned from them. Hmm. Sorry, my mind's caught back a little bit to when you spoke of your dad um, thinking it to be a waste of resources to poop, poop inside. Um, yeah. I, I saw your, I think it was a post on your website that was about the best leaves to use as toilet paper in these times. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought it was both hilarious and poignant in the sense that people have been sort of freaking out and thinking toilet paper is of most importance in these uncertain times. And yet you can go outside and select a, uh, a good old sycamore leaf and use, use that. Um, yeah, or the hose in the backyard or anything, you know, it, that, that this one of the strangest things about this strange time that we're in, obviously, is that the kind of things that people, it's been very interesting to me to watch people's uh, trust of, certain institutions erode, right? That the, the trust in certain institutions that they're like, for instance, that there's always going to be toilet paper in the grocery store. When that erodes, people make runs on things, but it's interesting to see what people have made runs on and how, um, how people believe that things were, were not going to be available in the future. And, and the toilet paper thing is really interesting. And mostly with the article, I wrote this article about what uh, urban trees make the best leaves for mm. toilet paper. We was facetious. It was, I was joking. It's fascinating. <laughs> uh, you know, it kind of went viral. And then, and then uh, a lot of people did not realize I was joking, which is, <laughs> they sent me angry emails about that they were plumbers and how could I be, uh, be suggesting that people flush. Oh my and, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty funny. You know, when you get, when something goes out to enough people, you're going to get response responses that run the gamut. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about how you're interested in people's behaviors and scout told me about, um, I think an experiment you did with his class where you split. Yeah. Scott, you go ahead. Yeah. It was the class that uh, was my freshman year. It was one of your beginning botany classes, but you split the class in two and you said, Hey kids, half of you get A's from the start. Do what you want. <laughs> and the other half, you got to work for it. So uh, you were in that class. You were, that was you, huh? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's funny when you get bored as a professor the things you do that the, the, <laughs> the part of you get you try to get on people's behavior yeah so so the idea behind that was to um 
I, I felt that we didn't know you, you you don't know how people are going to respond if the the perceived goal that they have is immediately just given to them. So take a college course, for instance, that um, when you're in a college course, you want to get a certain grade. And what if you knew immediately? And I thought and I thought, oh, I'll try this. What if you knew immediately that you just had an A at the beginning? Who's staying? Mm -hmm. Who's still interested? Who wants to be here? Mm -hmm. And um and the results of that I thought were fascinating. So I had about a hundred person study size, right? That was about the, the study group. And, and of those hundred people, first of all, they had to all get over the, the trust issue they had with me. Like, like, are you really going to do this? <laughs> do, do you, and I explained them, yeah, I have the power to do whatever I want. I'm a full professor. And, um, you know, nobody's looking and nobody cares to begin with. And the stakes are really low here. So, so, um, of those hundred people, um, a third of them just bounced. They're gone. I, I really did not see much of them anymore. They said, great, I'll take my A. I'm out. I'm mm -hmm. not interested. Or I am not willing to get over the activation energy necessary to get interested in this subject matter. And then um, one third of the people were in it to win it. They would have been there. They're stoked. They would have got an A probably anyway in the class. They were... Um, you know, that that's you, Scout. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm interested in college because I want to know more about the ecology of plants. I'm not trying to jump over some hurdle so I can land in my dumb, you know, office somewhere. No, you're trying to learn and get the interesting things that you can from the people around you who are smarter than you or whatever. And a third of the people were like that. They were just stoked. And then the other third were dealing with like some kind of weird guilt issues where they thought like they wanted to impress me or they wanted, they like showed up, but they sometimes didn't show up and felt as if uh, they needed my approval in some way, which is fascinating, you know, a third, a third, a third in that regard. And I, I bet if you did that experiment a bunch of times over and over again, that would be about it. You know, and then, then, then you think like, well, here's tell you what, you want to come to Cal Poly? You want to come to UC Santa Barbara? You want to come anywhere? Here's your degree. There you go. We'll put you on wow. a payment plan. You can have your degree. Who's staying? Who's interested? And, wow. and that, that is really what I was trying to get at in that case. Like that what matters is not the degree, the piece of paper. What matters is trying to become a better human and how many people actually want that and how many people are here because this is a hurdle for a perceived future. And I, and my guess, and I could be totally wrong here, but those third of the people that are perceiving every class that they're taking as a hurdle are not going to live a very fulfilled life. And they're currently not. Obviously, they're not. If, you, if you're presented with things and you think of them as hurdles and not wonderful challenges and opportunities, then, then uh, what, a, you know, what an empty life that is. Yeah, and... and... I was, uh, at the time, I remember I was bummed that all my friends were getting A's <laughs> and I had to memorize a hundred plant <laughs> names every week. And <laughs> you were in the control group. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I still walk around the forest and the hills around here and remember all the plant names of, that you taught me. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I really, I've, you, a lot of students have had that same experience that, that uh, you know, at, at, they had some kind of barrier to learning those things and then somehow they get locked in and then they can't walk by a plant without knowing the name of it and paying mm. attention a little bit more to it 
and they have my voice in their head for a long time after that telling them, hey, that's that plant. And before it was just a green blob that you could walk through the world without paying attention. But if you put names on things, you'd be careful because the next thing you know, you're going to be paying attention. Hmm. Um, you were kind of mentioning the difference between the yeah the people who were interested and those who were just in it for the grade what would you say constitutes a fulfilling or successful life to you yeah well um so so i i, I think about that i'm not gonna um s- suppose to have the end-all answer for that i can tell you some things that have have worked for me and that uh keep me going and keep me stoked and interested and day in and day out getting up and loving my job and the people around me and, and you know, avoiding, Mm -hmm. trying to avoid negative things. And and I I think avoiding negative emotions and so on, happiness just enters your life. And, and I talk to the people around me about this quite a bit and some of them have it and some of them have to cultivate it. But the idea of cultivating your curiosity is an important thing all the time all the time, like thinking about what am I interested in? What is it about this that fascinates me? Uh, that is, uh, that is something I go for. And then over and over again, I think that there's two things that kind of correlate with happiness. And those are meaningful relationships with the people around you and a connection to the natural world. And that second thing, connection to the natural world is I just have the luxury of being able to teach a connection to the natural world to young people. Some of them take it with them for their their entire life, and it will make their lives richer. I am almost positive of that, that a connection to the natural world, not being able to walk by a shrub and not know the name of it and not experience some small amount of awe and a little bit of delight, actually. I love the word word delight, and I've been thinking about Mm -hmm. the word delight and delightful lately in the sense that, you know, some people describe something as delightful. And you can experience delight in your life by looking closely at the details and not non-human organisms. And that connection to the natural world can provide all kinds of happiness for you. Meanwhile, you know, you're trying to cultivate really meaningful relationships and community with the people around you. And I have a number of things that I feel like techniques that I employ over and over again that help me with interpersonal relationships, but also to be of value to my community. I, um, and I don't know if you want me to go into those or not, but that's, I, I do think that's important to be building community constantly and, um, and really focused on quality, quality interactions with other people and meaningful relationships. And we could argue about what the word meaningful means, but you know what doesn't mm-hmm. happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, real quick, I was thinking about how you just mentioned that when you name something, you start to pay attention to it. I, I'm. It's a question to myself as much as to you. But what is, what is the boundary between becoming too familiar with something and becoming familiar with it? Because, like, I now that I know what a guitar is, I see it as a guitar rather than this fascinating thing that has a concavity in it that then creates sound because these strings move the waves in a certain way. Um, I guess mm-hmm. I'm curious where you think that boundary is between naming something and making it mundane and naming something and cultivating curiosity. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So, so I would, I would say that, um, some of that exists on a spectrum and, and I see, and I, and I don't know if this is a rule, but I tend to see this in life where you have a, a, a four stages in the way you interact with things and knowledge. And, and one of those being the, I think the, the lowest level being just complete ignorance you know you're ignorant of it. You know that this thing exists with a, ca- a cavity in the middle and beautiful music comes out of it and it's a big mystery. And that actually can be wonderful. Uh, you learn a little bit about it. You learn what a guitar is. You learn the name of it and so on. And there, and then, there, you know, there's this, there's a sort of the second stage of knowledge and information which you, you think you know everything about a guitar you know how it works it's wood it's got it's got strings on it it resonates all that kind of thing and and people enter the second stage of knowledge where they think that their entire understanding of a thing represents all the knowledge of a thing and um and i see this with plants too it's like a small amount of knowledge in which you think you know everything about it and then you if you continue along that path and you continue to learn more about a thing you enter a third phase of, uh, of knowledge, which is the phase that I feel like I sit in constantly, which is you are now, you know about, enough about guitars and how they're made and what the wood is that comes from them and the history associated with that, that you realize at this point in phase three, that you don't know shit about guitars. They're amazing. And, and there's whole cultures associated with how they work and how they're made and what guitars are what. And you've entered... You know enough about a thing to know that it's completely still mysterious. I feel this way about the very organisms that I study, plants that you just learn so much that you know nothing. And then there's this fourth stage, which is actually like, you know, who knows, Eric Clapton or some epic luthier or something like that, where they are actual experts and they know a ridiculous amount of it. And those people also always, they self-report themselves in the third phase of knowledge. They think they're know so so much that they know nothing as well mm-hmm. and, and i feel like i move along that transition between those phases of knowledge and and so the you know above the mystery remains at all levels and it's that second level of knowledge you have to be very careful about where you just think you are going through the world and you know everything and you know enough to know about how that whole thing works because most often you're wrong yep I, I like that way of thinking. I saw on your website, you said something about, you said, I believe in paying close attention to looking for the beauty in the details. Life is rich when we take time to closely observe the organisms and processes around us. I'm curious to, I guess, understand your brain better, but like, can you describe what it would be like for someone to observe the world through your eyes? Yeah, well, I, I, um, I, I wrote that because I do, I do feel that all the time. I feel that I'm constantly curious. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly trying to figure out more and more details about how things work. And maybe that came from, from my, the previous teachers I've had. Maybe it, it comes from the privilege I've had to be a professor in which I can follow my interest in things. But really, the idea of looking at things closely how many times have you had the experience of not knowing much about a thing and then actually getting into it and figuring it out and looking at the details of it, even if it was 
how uh, you know a bird on a wire that you're checking out, um, and then and then you have binoculars and you're looking closely at the feathers and you're seeing the shape of the of the beak and all that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, that bird takes on a totally totally different idea in your head, and it, and it becomes wonderful in a way it never did before. That experience, that experience of awe or delight or whatever you want to call it, I think that's that is a thing. What are you going for in life if not that? You're going for mm. your own dumb fame or your or, or like money. And I, I just think that a goal of awe and delight and having that, even getting it from other people, getting it from yourself and getting it from the natural world, that to me is something worth attaining. Mm-hmm. How do you balance that perspective with and you take it how you wish, but the desire to change things or to change people's minds um, between awe and action, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I also, I, I, I think I try to, I, I tend to balance that with this idea of um, being of value to the people around you and your community and uh, helping people. I, I have always thought, and I, I do still think this, and I've told, I tell a lot of people that this is the quickest route to any kind of happiness is to just serve other people, to help other people and work hard at that and um, be more outward facing in your, uh, in your whole life, less about how are you and how are you doing and how are you feeling and more about how are the people around me managing the world and is there anywhere that I can be useful? And is there any way that I can help? And I have done, I've done plenty of community service, and and uh, I was a a commissioner on a, a commission here in San Luis Obispo for eight years. I worked hard to um, to get the urban forest and development and so on in San Luis Obispo uh, worked out in a way that would 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 be great. And it um, you know it had its high points and its low points, and I tend to try to help people the most like the most I can and use the tools and resources I have available. And I think that if you can balance that with your own sense of awe and delight in the world, um, you're on the right track and, and you, you have, you have ups and downs and challenges mm. and so on setbacks. I, I, I like how, you know, I've been reading a lot about the Stoics recently and the, and, and Stoic philosophy and they, all the challenges and setbacks that, uh, they use the word setback, which I like. Yeah, I've had plenty of those. Yeah, I, I had a question for you around that, which was like, was there a time or experience after which you were never the same? Um, yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't think so. I'm not totally sure about that, but I've had, um, I, I, I feel like I've had plenty of experiences that have changed me. But mm-hmm. but not necessarily never the same. I, I, I think I you I have a a pretty good grounding in a life philosophy that helps me um, make decisions, interact with people, uh, move towards goals that I think are are worthy goals, and um, I don't get easily blown off course by by other people or events or anything like that. And I think, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I just don't. I, I don't. I don't think that I've had something that has changed me permanently. And maybe you know, um, I'll be the first to tell you that I'm lucky and I'm clueless about the terrible things that could and potentially will happen to me. I've had 
you know, both, both my parents died last year and I, I um, had, had, had some rough times with that whole thing, but, but ultimately, you know, I just constantly am feeling lucky. And um, since I brought up stoic philosophy, I'll tell you a technique that even before reading about it, I didn't even know I was a stoic until I read about it. And I realized, Oh, this is what, what these people are doing. And one of those things is, is they practice this technique of negative visualization, which I love this idea of negative visualization, which mm. is, you know, take a moment right now, bub, and think about, think about that when you and, and scout leave this conversation and you say goodbye and you guys go away, that's the last time you're going to see him. Okay. Now don't dwell on that for very long. But just think about that. And now you're you next time you actually have an interaction with him, you won't take it for granted as much. You will actually like and that negative visualization keeps things in perspective, allows you to constantly have the right perspective and that uh, things just come at you as gifts constantly. If you think of them that way and think about how shitty things could actually be. And, and you don't, you, I mean, and I'm not talking about being morbid and dwelling on, on that kind of stuff. I'm talking about helping yourself keep things in perspective and, and, and what they call negative visualization, which I've always called just having the right perspective is, um, yeah. is a great mental health technique. Yeah. I, I don't know if you pay attention to his work, but Sam Harris, he, yeah. he talks a bit about this and I remember one example was, that like if he's driving in the LA traffic and feels himself getting frustrated, he re- reminds himself that there's at least, well, I don't know, a billion people, 6 billion people, whatever it may be that are in a worse off position that would do anything possible that they could to be in your position just to be safe yeah. in a car on your yeah. way home from work or whatnot. So yeah, yeah I yeah. think you're right yeah. on with that. I, I'm I, I am I, I'm I'm a Sam Harris fan and and right. I agree with him completely. I, um, you know, it, it it may sound cheesy for when you're telling people that you know that just have perspective and and appreciate what you have and but but it's like a, <laughs> a lifelong practice that if you do it regularly, it actually works. You will actually be much more happy if you constantly are doing that. Uh, getting your perspective because there's this weird evolutionary history that we have as humans where you are evolved to not be satisfied you 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 come from a long line of genetics in which the organisms before you who are satisfied who got enough they're not in the gene pool anymore you have to have a crazy ambition to survive and as soon as you get that meal you need to forget the meal and think about the next meal you'll get. What is the next thing? What is the next sex I can have? What is the next meal? What's the next food? What am I in danger of? Constantly, constantly getting more and 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 really just dissatis- constant dissatisfaction. And if you have if you can train yourself to not be constantly dissatisfied, man, it's like a crazy freedom you can have from a long, long evolutionary history. Yes, yes. Um, I've always been fascinated with how much you've jumped from subject to subject or accomplished different things, whether it's being a professor or writing books. And, Mm -hmm. um, I guess to, to jump and segue over to reading, um, I read Rainwalkers, but in all of your books, what are you trying to 
accomplish and leave with your readers? Well, the the books are very different. I just um, let's I, let's let's stick with Brainwalkers, maybe if okay. that ma- makes that. it easier. Let's do that. Let's um, be, uh, because the 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 nonfiction natural history books they have a very specific purpose, and I love yep. those books, and they're great. Um, and uh, I wanted the challenge of doing something very difficult, and so I started writing fiction. Fiction is uh, writing. I feel it is very difficult. It, it, if you see somebody who has published a novel, know that that person has jumped through fire. They have an hmm. awesome process, first of all, to be able to write something that's that long and takes that long to write. Um, no novel comes out of just epic inspiration. You sit down and write it. You have to have a long, hardworking process to do it. And then um, if you pull it together and it, and it reads well, that's a that's a wonderful thing. And, and the idea behind fiction writing, and Rainwalker is actually my second novel uh this is the first one published the second one is coming out soon the idea behind rainwalkers was was can we tell stories that envision our best and worst case scenarios and i and i think about climate change a lot i study climate change i'm very interested in that and this was uh, a way of talking about imagine if a society went so far off the rails that things really got terrible they meddled with the environment, with weather, with uh, with the climate enough to affect it in a very negative way towards humans. And then, and then in that situation, how would their society respond? This is a fascinating question, I think, in general, is that, and you can see this with this COVID-19 infection of the world and infection of all our cultures, that it really exposes the weak part of your culture. And it exposes the the negative parts and, and um, has really done that. And I, and, and so Rainwalkers, which is a, um, with, with, I didn't know I was writing this, but the, the publisher calls it cli-fi, mm-hmm. which is a different type of you know, climate fiction, basically near future climate issue fiction. Um, the idea behind that was to say, to say that if you put that kind of stresses on the environment, how do people respond? And this, the and the human stories are are what people are interested in. It's what I'm interested in. And then, can you tell a human story in a background of nasty climate situations, and um, and and understand how people are going to respond in those situations? And so that's what um, that's what Rainwalkers was. It was the idea that also was to be a very fast paced action book that you couldn't put down. I don't know if that worked for you, Scout, or not, but um, but that was the idea. You're riveted. I know it. <laughs> he he was telling me yesterday. I, I I haven't read it yet, but he said, "Yeah, I kept reading. I couldn't put it down in almost those words." So. It's going to take a couple of days of your life before you. <laughs> yeah, that was the idea behind that. And and you know, I loved writing it. I've been writing. I I get up and I write every morning. It's a it's sort of a it's a routine I have. I wake up early. I have a space where I go to write, and I spend anywhere between 45 minutes and an hour and a half in my little office day in and day out grinding away. And, uh, I love the pop the Pablo Picasso quote, which is when inspiration finds you, she better find you working. And uh, I, because every morning mm-hmm. is not inspirational. Every morning is not um, good. Some mornings you get a sentence or two done. Some mornings you get 500, a thousand words done and it's wonderful. But, um, 
but it's the process and it's like the grinding that um, allows you, I'm a finisher. I feel like in general, I finish projects. And so that grinding process has really helped me to crank out a lot of stuff. And, and, and you're right, Scott, I've done a bunch of different types of things. I do building, I do writing, I do teaching, I do all of that. And, but it's, they're all the same. It's all like a, a building, a building and building a novel are just about process and, and having the right habits in order so that you can grind through patiently through a thing. I, I was an apprentice for a woodworker in Santa Barbara and used to say that there is only one skill and that's patience. Everything else just comes easily after that. Hmm. Fascinating. I'm thinking about what you were ta- when you were talking about storytelling and well, did you read any of Yuval Noah Harari books? Yuval sure. Noah Harari's yeah, books. I love Sapiens. That, that, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just fascinated by how he kind of talked about how influential stories have been and then also in the evolution of humans and to also sort of consider that you're coming from a very scientific perspective and yet you chose to write a fictional story to connect with, uh, to better connect your story, I guess. And I guess I'm... I've been thinking a bit recently about the the approach of science versus the approach of uh, culture or let's say mysticism or something like that. Mm-hmm. Scout, Scout and I spent a bit of time um, in Indonesia in one particular place. Um, they, they had this story around the sea. Uh, they called her the queen of the South Sea and had all these stories for why people you know, capsize their boats and how powerful the sea was. And it wasn't a matter of science. It wasn't like, all right, this is how this is how the waves work. And this is why you sink and all that. Um, I guess I'm interested to get your, your sense of perspective in regards to stories, how stories and science can play together. Yeah, well, I, I I believe and I think this is um, pretty true that people don't learn anything from data and facts and and uh, and statistics. People, humans, are hardwired to learn from stories, and and our ancient man didn't sit around the fire and talk about the <laughs> probability of getting eaten by a tiger, right? They talked about the epic stories of what happened when they came came in contact with the fierce animals and all that kind of thing. And that is what our evolutionary history is. That is what we uh, have to deal with as scientists. And science has a huge communication problem. I, uh, and and I, I feel like part of what I try to do is interpret the natural world, interpret plants and plant biology for a general audience. And I am... I'm a full professor. I, I like I'm sort of so beyond evaluation here at Cal Poly or anything like that. And and I, I have the teaching gig down and I feel like, well, what can I what can I contribute to the profession in a way that's meaningful? And some and some of that is to uh, interact with the general public in the form of writing easy to consume natural history books or telling totally fictional stories with, with, with the scientific background about um, worst case and best case scenarios and telling funny and interesting stories and all that kind of thing is, um, is maybe a place 
where where I can fit in. And 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 like you, I I love Yuval Noah Harari. I think that his ideas of you know his ideas of existential problems, his his ideas of telling stories and explaining the history of humans in a different and fascinating way is a thing that people can get behind. It's no, there's no it's not a surprise that Sapiens, for instance, is an international bestseller, right? Because people want to hear stories about about how humans have come to be and as much as or way more so than they want to hear about statistics and data and all that kind of thing. And it was, uh, um, I'll be honest with you, but Bob, I haven't listened to a lot of the podcasts, but I did listen to your uh, interview with Jack Fellows because mm -hmm. he's, he's awesome, you know, and he's, he's done a lot. And, and uh, it was, it, it was interesting to hear Jack say to you some things that he said about climate change and about how, uh, you know, you, you're asking him as this, uh, young person who wants to make a difference in the world, what, what can we do? What, what, yeah. what can I do to, um, you know, come to some kind of action on climate change? And Jack has this long career and a really good understanding of what's happening says to you basically, well, you know, Bob, good thing for you to do is get used to it. We burn up all the fossil fuels. The climate is going to change by two degrees. Things are going to get worse. And maybe you can vote. That's good, too. But uh, <laughs> for the most part, get used to it. And, and, and you know, that, that is a um, – people don't want to hear that. People want to hear, like, you, 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 can, you can make a massive change. You can do it, you know. And, and I just um, – I don't know how, how – uh, realistic the latter is but i do know that jack knows what he's talking about and i know that people like bill reese i don't know if you know who bill reese is at ubc mm -hmm. one that um uh he pioneered the idea of the carbon footprint and if you read yep. bill reese's recent writings this is so awesome and so depressing in so many ways too and that mm -hmm. they say like you know the cat's out of the bag we need to we need to mitigate here, people, and not, you know, think that we're going to avoid. Because we aren't avoiding, we're going to mitigate. And, yeah. And I really felt like I heard that from Jack as well, which was fascinating. Yeah, the the stories we yeah, are telling ourselves is, <laughs> is, is, I guess, motivating or depressing. Um, yeah, it could be motivating, you know. I, I, we, we, you can tell young people great stories. I feel like, you know, service service to your community and service to your country service to your county you name it your your family whatever that is an awesome story that you can actually make huge differences you know you universally people could do service as young people we could mm -hmm. have that written into the way that america is and yet we don't but we could and it could be a powerful story around that what did you do during your two years of required service how did that work and and what contributions did you make and what a better place it would be if it was just written into the story of our country that, yeah, you do two years of service. That's what you do. Yeah. I think there's something to that for sure. We were, um, we were surfing and saw a buddy out the other day and he, he lost his job and was sort of considering or may still be considering joining the military. And he was just going on about how that would bring him so much meaning and unite him with other people under a similar purpose. And I mean, we both heard him out to just see where he's coming from and 
totally get the the desire for belonging. Um, I asked him what about the Peace Corps, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think there's something something to young people finding a, finding a time, yeah, to serve. I mean, I don't know if nations is necessarily what we need to be serving, but serving the community, yeah. Yep, yep, and and you know, so, some kind of universal public service. I think and it doesn't have to do anything with the military. Universal public service can be happening at a very local level and should happen at the local level. And, and, hmm. and, uh, and, and also just to give young people more meaning, more ways of, uh, of, of working themselves into the story of the world, you know, because see, I think you see a lot of young people that are trying to figure out what they love, what they want to do. And they're kind of just grabbing at the world as it swirls around them trying to figure out where they fit into it and, and being forced into the activation energy of doing something that is initially uncomfortable, whether that be service or work of some kind or learning of some kind is a very valuable thing. And I, I think you're kind of touching on the students that show up and are not very interested in your, or in much, I guess, at university. Yep. Um, uh, Scout and I were lucky enough, like I said, to go to Indonesia, and that was part of our individual gap years before school. And um, it's it's interesting. The courses we did were focused on culture conservation and community, and I think those are really what tie our interests together at this point. That, like. I can, I mean, I, most of what I do can kind of fall back on those. And because I was allowed to go out and explore a bit of the world, gain a sense of story and purpose through my, through, yeah, uncomfortable experiences, um, then I feel like I was able to show up at university a little bit more curious than others. So I think you're on to something. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it was, it was fun and interesting to watch Scout go through his college career at Cal Poly, <laughs> making it, making it up as he went along. And, uh, apparently you were a business major, but you barely took any of those classes or you the ones that you thought were interesting and just went through zero actual rigid curriculum. You took everything that was interesting to you. And I love that. That's right. Yeah. Well, it was funny that I, I found you in the, in the botany department, even though I was in the, the business department and, yeah. uh, I, I'm recounting on our, last few conversations when I was a senior and it was the spring semester. Senior, yeah, whatever that and means. And I was <laughs> like, all right, um, can you help me uh, get a degree? Like I've done four years of just classes that I've enjoyed. <laughs> and it's generally been business and environmental design and some of some botany classes. But I remember going yeah. to the, the vice provost and having a conversation with her that you helped me get. And basically, yeah, I was just communicating the idea that um, what I was after was to, to learn through being on my own journey. And when you're on a trail, um, if you're just following the trail, like you don't actually learn, but if you're creating your own trail, then I feel like you're going to learn more. So, um, yeah. And do you feel like you did? I mean, I, I enjoyed my experience so, so, so much and, uh, yeah. I wouldn't do it any, any different. Yeah. I so, come in. Uh, just having, uh, I was just going to say, just having watched it, it's interesting because I totally agree with the sentiment that 
when you're off trail, you kind of have to pay more attention and really like listen to what you care about and focus on that. Um, while also like there, I think so many people have a like strong need to, um, have, I mean, a story behind what they're doing. And so he's, he's sort of created that over time. He's thought about it because it's not just, Oh, I did a business degree, which is like an easy, an Mm -hmm. easy something to tell people. Whereas when you actually have to like sort of come up with the story yourself, because it's, it's a lot of jumbled parts. There's, I guess there's value in, in that as well. Yeah. And there's, um, there's value in going your own way and having the difficulty associated with that. You know, so many students want to ask you the question or say to you, just tell me what's required of me so I can get that thing done. So mm-hmm. I can move on. Just tell me what you're asking of me. And the worst thing that they want to, that, they, that you could say to them in that case is, well, what do you want to learn? <laughs> As a crazy professor, I've come into a room before of students and I was like, yeah, well, okay, all right, you guys. What do you want to? What do you want to today? <laughs> I can talk about anything. You just tell me what. What are you interested in? Yeah, yeah. there's just like silence, you know, when you get that. Just aren't you just going to give us a lecture? Can you just <laughs> get it over with? Get it over with while I vaguely pay attention. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah. What are you currently thinking about that really excites you? Um, uh, I, well, what, have, uh, you know, I've, I've read some books recently that have been, um, that have been really interesting to me that there, there's a, a great book out that I just, um, finished up called Coddling of the American Mind. It's by, uh, Jonathan Haidt. And, um, and that book is, um, uh, about this culture of sort of culture of safetyism mostly in universities, but of entitlement in young people and how challenging people's comfort can actually make them stronger. Things that you guys know, you know that, and, 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 and things that humans have known for a long period of time. But we have um, we've sort of, I think we've drifted away from that in the sense where uh, teaching and parenting and interaction between old and young people has been very, um, what's the right word? Accommodating. Parenting cannot be accommodating. I, I have a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I feel like my job as a parent so many times is to be just a proxy for the terrible world that's out there that's awaiting them, and waiting for them. And, and what I mean by that is that y- you have to set boundaries for them. You have to You have to create situations in which they can fail as the stakes are low. And you, uh, you have this, again, I'll go back to evolutionary history of humans. They, you have a long evolutionary history telling you to do nothing, maintain as little uh, effort and energy and things that you can, take as many reserves, get whatever you can for yourself, be a shitty person, basically. And, and uh, it's not surprising that a lot of people, young people particularly, they, they, are born at that stage and you as a parent have to like constantly not accommodate that, but make it more challenging for them and not coddle them in any way. And, uh, and so I've been thinking about coddling the American mind and how to bring that, those concepts and ideas into, into my teaching. I've also, uh, I, I heard recently a cool, 
a cool thing that was a comedian was talking about doing his annual specials. So, so this is George Carlin, and he would work towards every year a a, a spe- and, he, and, and then the, and hearing about it, he's kind of workshopping about how to be a comedian and how how he um, how he did his annual specials and now they're basically like what we would consider like a netflix special or something like that and when george carlin got done with one of them he threw everything out he never told the same jokes again he invented whole new jokes for the next year because he was bored with the old jokes or they just wasn't giving him as good and so i'm i'm playing with this idea which i have done in the past which is to get rid of all the lecture material i have Mm go for all new lecture material, which will suck for a little while, but at least it'll be interesting to me. I'll learn new things in the process and constantly trying to find a way to have some kind of voluntary discomfort in my life so that I can be better and get better and challenge myself. So those are two ideas that I've recently encountered that I'm interested in pursuing. How do you... um... Or what are you focusing on in terms of parenting that, I mean, you mentioned a couple of things, but in terms of like recognizing that this is what biology is saying, because you have a a good understanding of that. And Mm -hmm. yeah, like what are some other examples of how you recognize that you have to parent to sort of uh, steer away from some, from biology? Yeah. uh, And I'll, you know, you, you can, Having an understanding of evolutionary history and evolutionary, evolutionarily the way that humans are, probably have been selected to behave gives you a, a pretty interesting perspective on, um, on the way that people who are emotionally immature behave. You know, you, you get into a situation in which you don't want to share what you have. And I have this with my kids all the time. And, and it's funny to mock them and point it out where you're like, hey, you guys, you're perceiving these resources as limited and hmm. you're trying to get what you can for yourself. And guess what? Trying to get what you can for yourself is not going to make you happy. What is going to make you happy is giving up those resources to somebody else who wants them. Try it one time. Try it a hmm. little bit. And you'll notice a totally different effect than what you expect. You expect that getting it for yourself is what's going to work for you. It's not going to work and it rarely works. And it actually leaves you feeling kind of empty and unhappy. What leaves you feeling happy is watching somebody else get something that you could have gotten for yourself and having those moments with, with we, I, I use a lot of mockery with them, which is awesome. Especially when you have a 13 and a 15 year old, you can mock them. <laughs> Shame is totally under, under, uh, underrated with parenting. <laughs> I'm about that, but but at least it's fun, you know, when they're teenagers to be like, "Hey, what, what are you thinking? Was that was that your plan? You were just going to get it all for yourself? <laughs> <laughs> work there. Let's see how that works out for you." <laughs> you know, so it's a it's it, it's a it's an awesome project, and and dudes, man, parenting is so hard. And here here's what I mean by that: like bad yeah. parenting is just lazy parenting. Just let because uh, they just break you down, and sometimes you want to be like, ah, oh, just uh, do that thing, whatever. <laughs> just, can you just leave me alone? And that's the moment when you shouldn't be doing that. You should be going, no, I'm going to hold a line here. I'm going to, you, you, you're doing the wrong thing. Let me explain that to you. Let me help you. Let me talk to you. All those types of things. And um, 
it's just hard. It's a hard, constant, awesome, fun project. And, um, and wow, you know, my kids are as strong-willed as me and they will eventually be <laughs> me. And I hope that I get, and I like in parenting to like, you know, you get this big old, huge boulder rolling down a hill and you're, and, and it's, it's destined, it's going somewhere and you can't really stop it from going down that hill and ending up where it's going to end up. But you can kind of just like push it in one direction the best you can and hope it doesn't run you over in the process. That's yeah. funny. Yesterday we were talking about um, discipline and, and how our parents disciplined us. And um, I remember one time I was recounting on Mother's Day with, with my mom, but she, uh, it was after a soccer game and I'd gotten a Capri Sun, you know, you get <laughs> your, your orange slices and all that. And I think that I didn't share it with Bub. And so she's like, all right, I'm just going to take it away from you. Or throw it in the trash <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Yeah, watch you not, get it thrown away. Yeah, yeah. Being the little monkey monster that I was, I ran after her, grabbed her back pocket of her overalls, ripped them down and <laughs> tore a hole in her overalls. And she had to walk out of the, the, uh, the soccer. soccer field with her butt hanging out. And then the rest of the day I had to sit in the room and I wrote sorry a hundred times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, those... Those are awesome opportunities, challenges for your mom, challenges for you, challenges for everybody who's involved to, to just try to not act like a very base human, you know, try not to be the, the, the little monkey. And, and, and I really think that, that it's a lifelong thing. You're, you know, your, your mom is still dealing with it in herself, even though she raised you and she, she's still trying to be, not be the, angry monkey that lashes out on everything that goes wrong with her. And, 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 uh, you've noticed this, you guys are what you're in your twenties and you're, you're, you're starting to realize that, Hey, I don't necessarily need to respond the way I've always responded to things. Like there is a, there's different ways. And, um, and that lifelong practice of, of trying to avoid being a base monkey, you know, you let your parents laid it down for you as, as, as in, in difficult parenting situations. That is not the way to act, Bub. Bub, you're not acting. Right. You want to share stuff, and, and then and then you start to. I, I think and I hope that you start to incorporate that some in some of your own um, thoughts about yourself and how you're acting and how you're interacting with people. And and yeah. you know, right when you're a kid and you do that kind of thing to your mom, what are the stakes? The stakes are you're basically you're going to end up in your room writing a bunch of stuff. But if you if you carry that into adulthood and you act like that. The world just takes shit away from you. It takes away friends. It takes away money, and it takes away your free time. It, and it will if you act that way. And so, learning to act properly in a way that um, you don't lash out at people is a crucial, crucial goal of parenting. Is to to help lay a foundation for your kids that way. And um, that's that's what's driving me now with them. And my wife is is she's wonderful and. And, and we're very united front in these things. Awesome. Um, we want to be respectful of your time. Do you have time for a few more minutes or sure. a few more questions? Yeah, I got a few more questions would be great. Thanks. Awesome. Um, imagine your 20-year-old self in the chair next to you. What two things would you tell him to do? And what two things would you tell him not to do? Oh, the second part's much easier than <laughs> the regret. Uh, I, um, so we've all done some things, uh, Bob, we're not proud of, you know, and I'm no different than that. 
I was very, very into athletics. I, I, I played, call, uh, I, I played high school, uh, football. I played high school basketball and, um, I went so hard and I, um, I went, I don't know what I was doing. I was going for glory and I was going and, and, and I, I treated for the people. NBA. Yeah. Right. Right. Who knows what I was thinking, but, and I, and I played a lot of basketball through college all the way up until when I got here as a professor, I actually won the intramural league um, at Cal Poly with some <laughs> other professors and, and just incredibly competitive asshole. And, that, and, and I feel like uh, it's been a journey for me not to be that person. But in the process, I broke my body and I did. And, and it's just now that I'm 45, I'm feeling like, oh, it just, it wasn't worth it. You could have gone a little easier. I, on my son's second birthday, I sustained a real bad back injury and I've just been slowly but surely recovering from that. And I've uh, found some techniques that help a lot with back pain and strength and things like that. But, but, but if I could say to, to say to that 20 year old Matt Ritter, Hey dude, chill out. It's like you're, it's the glory that you think you're going to get and that you're going for. Nope. It's just not worth it chill out and that would be a nice thing that a conversation to have with the 20 year old Matt Ritter who would not listen by the way to 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 the 45 year old Matt Ritter and then uh you know things the first part of your question so that's things that I did that I probably wish I I wouldn't have and, and really, you know, and, and, and because I, I, right now I just, and day in and day out, I feel like I've lived such a wonderful life. It's really hard to have any regrets about anything that I did in the past. All of those things led up to where I am now, moment to moment, really particularly enjoying my life, this world, the people around me, uh, the, the profession I ended up in. I just feel lucky day in and day out. And so, uh, having any kind of regrets or telling myself to take a different course early on in my life, it's hard to get behind that idea just because of who I am and where I am now. Yeah, I think you've got a great perspective. Um, let's go, we can go a little bit more rapid fire on like three more questions. Um, but do you have any unique habits? Yeah, I got, uh, you know, I got, I got one habit that I see. I don't, not many people do. I, I record day in and day out where I am and what I'm doing every day. I keep a log and, uh, that, that means that I know where I was, where I went, who I had meetings with, what I did every hour of every day. And I, and, and I keep it in a little log book and I've done that for 10 years and, and some of the more than 10 years now, probably you no know, closer to 15 years. Uh, and so I, for instance, could go to the shelf here, pull off a book, and I could tell you what I was doing on May 12th of, uh, of 2008 or something like that. And uh, it doesn't take very much time to write things down that you're doing and pay attention. And it's not it's not a journal. It doesn't it doesn't uh, I don't talk about my emotional state or anything like that. I talk about what I did, where I went and so on. And, and, and I really believe that 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 habit has helped me to uh, pay closer attention to what's going on in the world and who I'm interacting with. Uh, just knowing I'm going to write it down or writing it down and reckoning. I call it uh, the process of reckoning in the sense that you 
look back on a day, on a week, whatever, and know what you did. Think about last Tuesday. Do you even know where you were or what you did? You would be, you, things can disappear from your mind if you're not careful about them. Next thing you know, you're, you're an old ass person with no good memories about what happened or no good evidence of what happened. And I love my life. I think that if you want to slow that down, pay close attention to stuff. That's, it's pretty interesting too. Well, I think I have, I don't know what it is in my brain and your brain that sort of wants to, wants to do that. But I have two things that I've been tracking for quite some time. When I was 16, I started a uh, one second every day video, which was actually an app that I found via Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing it basically every day since then. And it's just fast fascinating to see the the changes in life and what I was doing just based on a blip from one day to the next um and the other maybe more similar to you yours and was um a bit inspired by scout's idea that we we either live every day or in a day we either live we exist or we survive and so every day I write down whether I thought that day I lived, existed, or survived, as well as basically a sentence or a few notes around what I did. Um, and and in a journal book or something like that, or what's the actual physical thing you do? I keep it in the notes on my phone. So I just put an L and then in parentheses, the few notes that will remind me of that day. Um, does it work? Yeah. I'm fascinated by it. And I actually, I'm curious what you use, not necessarily that has to have a straightforward function, but I, I basically look at it every year to um, see where I was at in terms of what, how many days I lived, how many days I existed and how many days I survived and sort of what constitutes a day that um, lead leads to that. And, and a, hopefully not on a purely selfish uh, motivation, but rather what brings me to uh, find myself in meaningful days. Totally. Totally. That's, that, that's awesome. And I, and I, um, I feel like I get the same thing out of keeping this log is that at the end of a year, I know how many days of exercise I got, how many movies I saw, how many, um, you know, how many like wonderful meetings I had, how many really bad days I had, all, all those yeah. kinds of things are, are there and you can, and you can look back on it and you, you can actually, you can turn it into a, did I, did I change? Did I achieve the things I thought I was going to achieve? How does a year go by and what has changed in the year? And are you marking time? Are you marking time in a meaningful way? Can you be self-reflective and and uh, I'm reminded of saying something like that unexamined life is not worth living. I mm. truly believe that, you know, and, and what better way to examine your life than write a couple things down that you're doing in your life all the time and keep some data. Yeah. Interesting. Um, who is the most passionate person, you know, Hmm. I know uh, quite a few passionate people, people that I love having conversations with. I, who comes to mind first? Yeah, I have a, a a local friend of mine, a guy named Jonathan Stoff, who runs and is the owner of Ascendo Coffee in San Luis Obispo, is um, is incredibly passionate about 
one coffee and getting it right. And anybody who's like that, who you see that they are trying hard to do the, the thing that they do, however big or small that is, and they're trying to get it right and know everything about it. Mm-hmm. That's inspiring, inspiring to be around that. I, I, I mentioned uh, Garrett Hack to you uh, maybe earlier. I can't even remember. He's a woodworker in Vermont and a good friend of mine who I've, um, who I've known for many, many years and probably one of the world's best living woodworkers right now. And it's just so wonderful to see how uncompromising he is in the challenges and the different furniture that he makes and how hard he makes it on himself and how beautiful the pieces are and how he really, um, how he, how he has zero compromise year in and year out. And that is, is very inspiring. And that is, um, you know, those two people have a massive amount of passion about what they do and, and, and how they do it. And and you don't need to be some big sweeping epic person who is a politician or changes massive people's lives. What if you got a cup of coffee, right? And you got it just right. And all the complexities that, uh, that were associated with that, that is a life's work and a meaningful life's work. What if you tried to get blades sharp and you got tools to work right and nothing's more beautiful than a perfectly working tool and that was your life and and and, and i i see that and I, i'm inspired i'm inspired by that that's super awesome um one la- last question and you mentioned the coddling of the american mind but is there any book that you have gifted most oh uh gifted most yeah there's a couple books i uh because I run with a lot of plant biologists, I uh, there there's a there's a book um, by a, a French botanist, a guy named Francis Hallet, called "In Praise of Plants," and it's just a mind blowing change in the way you see the world because it's a big huge comparison uh, between plants and animals and how different those organisms are, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I've given that a lot, spent a lot of time talking to people about that. I also um, believe that Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life and, and, and Going for Meaning mm-hmm. and Not Happiness, I've given a lot of young people that book um, because it is, uh, it's particularly effectual in young people's lives as a, as a who are, like I said earlier, just the world swirling around them. They're trying for some kind of vision. Well, that is a very clear version. That book presents a very clear version of a life philosophy it can lead to more and more meaning in your life. And so um, that book is a, is, is a wonderful addition to that idea of life philosophy. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. It was it flew by, got some yeah. similar interests and just really appreciate you taking the time. Well, uh, Bob, I hope that we get an opportunity to meet in person uh, uh, someday and scout no doubt you and i will see each other again sometime soon great talking to you guys yeah i appreciate it thanks so much we'll connect soon bye bye okay guys i hope you enjoyed this episode of the bub on purpose podcast if you would like to get show notes from the learnings that i hope you gathered during this conversation you can email bub on purpose at gmail.com and you will get a response with all of the show notes Make sure to title the subject of your email something like show notes or your grandma's cookie recipe, your friend's dog's middle name, or really anything. I'll get back to you. 
Also, I would love if you would send me your suggestions of what you did or didn't like or who you think I should interview next on the podcast. And again, please send that to bubonpurpose at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. If you could subscribe and share, that would be awesome. Uh, If you don't want to, let me know why and maybe we can make the podcast better. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, go follow us at Bub on Purpose on Instagram. Uh, I don't know why I just said us. It's just me.